listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. We have started this series in in Matthew chapter 5, and so we're going to be getting into that in a moment. First, I want to tell you a story. When we lived in Alberta a number of years ago, pastoring in a small town church there, I remember coming home as a family from some holidays. We had been on holidays in Saskatchewan, and we came home, and we're unloading the van, and just as the minivan was unloaded, the town constable pulled up in front of our house. And I remember thinking, oh boy, what do I do? There's just that automatic little, you know, fear slash, you know, kind of like, oh boy, I hope I didn't do something, you know, that I shouldn't have, because why is he here? Is he going to write me up for something? And, and he came to the front door, and I, I, I saw his vehicle out front, and, and as I came to the front door to greet him, all he said to me is, you're home, finally, I've been waiting, you're doing a funeral, and the visitation is tomorrow, and the funeral is the next day, and I was like, oh, okay, I, I really didn't even know this guy, one time before that, he pulled me over for speeding in a school zone, and, uh, and, and, uh, and so he had pulled me over, and, and I was like, oh, I got busted, and, and uh, you know, as he comes, and he starts, uh, he, he takes a look at me, and he's like, oh, you're the padre. He was former military, and, and, and he says, you're from the Alliance Church, aren't you? And I said, yes, I am. And, uh, and uh, he said, oh, I can't give you a ticket then. And I was like, yes. But then I said, no, you ought to, because I was breaking the law. He says, oh, no, I can't give the man of the cloth a, a, a ticket. You know, that just wouldn't be good. That would be bad karma or whatever he started to say. And so he didn't end up giving me a ticket, even though I asked him to give me one because I deserved it. He never did. So now he's on my doorstep saying to me, hey, you're doing a funeral. So I felt a little obligated, and and also I was commanded to to do this funeral. Turns out it was a dear friend of his from town who uh, he and his wife had had an argument, and she ended up packing up her stuff and said she needed some time to think, and she loaded up her her, uh, a few suitcases into a vehicle and was going to drive off to Saskatchewan to go spend some time with family, and on her way there, she was killed in a head-on car accident. And as I met with this husband, I met with a man overcome with grief and sorrow. Met with a family that was devastated because of this, just as as any death is so, but this one tragically and with great emotion attached to it. Right prior towards the funeral service, something happened that I will never forget. I saw something and was a part of something that uh, it will leave a lasting impact in my mind. Prior to the funeral service, the casket was in a side room and the family was visiting and and I was kind of going around making sure everything was set and I came back into the visitation room and here I saw this grown man on top of the casket, the open casket on top of his wife, begging and crying and saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and in just such grief, we had to take this man and physically get him off and back him away from this situation. Such intense sorrow and mourning and sadness. I don't know if I've witnessed something that real and that uh, just so brazen in, in all of my life. In the months that followed, I spent some time reaching out to him and, and uh, tried to offer him some comfort and encouragement. He came to church a number of times, but he took an extended leave from his job and kept the blinds in his house. Oftentimes they were closed and, and did not allow people to come and see him. He went into some very dark and deep places. This was an intense mourning that caused his life to be turned upside down. 
And yet we have this statement and the beatitude that we're going to be looking at here today. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, said this, and this is the verse we're going to focus on from Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, this verse that I just read often and probably even did get quoted at the funeral service for his wife and oftentimes is mentioned in cards and in uh, letters to people desiring that they would be comforted by God in their mourning. And the Bible is very clear that God comforts us in our mourning. Psalm 34, it says that God is near to the brokenhearted. Psalm 126 says that if we sow in tears, we will reap with songs of joy. Psalm 30 says, weeping may last for the night, but joy will come in the morning. 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 1, we are told that our God is the God of all comfort. All comfort is with our God. But this morning, as we look at this verse and we discover what Matthew 5 verse 4 really says, when, when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. This is a different kind of mourning than the loss of a loved one. This is a, is a different sense of mourning that we are to have, and, and, and it is a necessary mourning that every true child of God must experience. We started this summer series here in the Beatitudes, and, and uh, it is part of the greatest sermon by the greatest teacher, Jesus himself, found in Matthew chapter 5 to, to chapter 7. And here at the start of his sermon, the first words out of his mouth are these eight beatitudes. And these are the greatest words. And this is the preparatory aspect for the gospel. This is the heart attitude, the mind understanding and the heart attitude to receive what Christ does later on when he gives himself on the cross for our sins. And here in these beatitudes, these eight beatitudes are eight characteristic traits of a citizen of God's kingdom. These are things that ought to be in the life of every believer and not just a one-time thing, but an ongoing reality in our lives. These eight beatitudes actually reveal who's in the kingdom and who isn't. These are serious words that we need to pay attention to. And in these statements, these eight beatitudes, Jesus makes some shocking statements about the heart qualities of someone who is a true follower of his. As one person said in response, one commentator said, these eight beatitudes, they slay us so that we might live. Jesus welcomes only certain people with a certain heart into his kingdom. And that is why it is vital that we study the beatitudes. It's, it's so important that we study the entirety of God's word, but we see these important realities found right here in the beatitudes. And so, like we did last week, I'd love for us to start at the beginning of uh, chapter 5 and just read the first few verses to put it all in context. So it says in chapter 5, verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying... Now, we're going to just stop there. Just remember that Jesus is speaking. He's targeting his disciples. His disciples have gathered around him. And, and yet we know that there are more than just his disciples. There are the multitudes. There were probably hundreds, if not thousands of people there on the Mount of Beatitudes overlooking the Sea of Galilee, as we saw last week, where Jesus was speaking. 
And so Jesus is speaking to his disciples, but his eyes are on the multitudes. Jesus' heart is for the lost. It is to see lost people come to him and find him as Savior and Lord and to see them become followers, for them to become disciples of Jesus Christ and from that point go out and grow and mature as, as disciples and to see lost people get saved and, and, and save people discipled and disciple people sent out and to see this as, as a moving a growing movement of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is speaking to his disciples, but his eye, his heart is on the lost, on the multitudes. And nine times in these verses, in these eight Beatitudes, Jesus uses the word blessed. This was the original. And as we talked a little bit last week, the original and the most powerfully way of describing what a hashtag blessed life is. And we see that all the time. Here's some pictures off Instagram I took this week. I just went and searched, you know, hashtag blessed. And, and, and you'll see, well, it was, uh, just go back uh, one second there. You see there's some nice dessert, you know, hashtag blessed. Get to eat this stuff. Doesn't look all that exciting. Maybe the strawberries on top should have cherries and then it would be much better. Hashtag blessed, you know, he, this guy got a nice car. Hashtag blessed, I got to go to the beach today. You know, this is where I get to spend my vacation. This guy here uh, with, with the truck, it, it, it's, you know, always working, work truck. Hashtag blessed, you know, that he's able to fix his own, his own vehicle, I guess. Someone had twins. Hashtag blessed. Hashtag I'm tired, probably as well, somewhere in there. And someone going away on a holiday. Hashtag blessed. You know, next one, you know, watermelon. Yeah, that's pretty decent. You know, oh, I'm in a relationship. Someone in Germany, they're, they're hashtag blessed that they're, they're, they're in a relationship. And then one of mine made it on Instagram, too. Uh-huh, hashtag blessed. You know, not only did my girls come home this week from Australia, cherry season is among us, so I got to pick up some cherries, welcome the girls at, my, at, at the airport, and, um, and, and eat cherries. Uh, you know, and so cherries kind of sandwiched that day perfectly as, as uh, the girls have come home. So hashtag blessed. And so, so you know, we, we'll put these kind of things, you know, in life and say, okay, this is the mark of a blessed life, whether it's a holiday, twins, a relationship, a car, a house, a trip, girls coming home, cherries, all of these things. But Jesus is going to something far deeper and far more long-lasting, not temporal things, not, not earthly things. He's talking about eternal things when he talks about the blessed life. When Jesus talks about a hashtag blessed life, he's talking about the approval of God upon a person's life, being empowered and strengthened by God himself uh, in, in our lives. And, and so Jesus, though, in giving these beatitudes and talking about what a blessed life looks like, he, he uses a form of literary writing or speaking in the form of a paradox. And, and here's a definition of a paradox in case you're interested. And remember, all of these slides will be uploaded on our website so you're able to go and, and, and listen to the sermon if you miss the sermon or parts of it or um, need to get some of the references and things that we're talking about here today. So here's a definition from the dictionary of a paradox. A seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. G.K. Chesterton said, um, once to find a paradox is this, a truth standing on its head calling for attention. 
So here Jesus is taking some truths. He's turning it upside down to get our attention because what he is saying here is alarming because he is saying that the way of a blessed life, the blessed life is much different than what we automatically think a blessed life actually looks like. And so Jesus is taking these truths, turning them upside down, causing us to examine what he has to say. And we saw that last week as we looked at the first beatitude where in verse 3, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Basically, Jesus was saying, blessed, approved by God, a life that is strengthened and encouraged and empowered by God is someone who is beggarly poor in spirit, realizing that we have nothing to offer God, nothing to commend ourselves to God, nothing in and of ourselves, no heritage, no prayer that we've prayed, no money that we've given, nothing that would endure us to God, that we are spiritually in poverty before him. And it goes on to say, for theirs, those who recognize their spiritual poverty before God, he says, go on to inherit the kingdom of God. We inherit all things by understanding that we in and of ourselves are poor. We understand that we're spiritually bankrupt, that we bring nothing to the table, No resources, no talents, no sparkling personality. You know, God is lucky to have me on his team. No serving in the church or in some ministry or being a pastor or an elder for decades upon decades. Nothing. None of that will earn us entrance into God's favor in order for him to give us eternal life and to be part of his kingdom. And it's very interesting at the very end of his sermon... If we were to fast forward to Matthew chapter 7 at the end of Jesus' sermon, he ends up saying these important words. After he has said all that he has said, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. These were people who were missing these top, these first two Beatitudes. More than likely, these were people who never came with a poverty of spirit. Instead, they came with a whole list, a checklist of all of the things that they have done. These are people who've been involved in activity and yet have never truly surrendered their heart. They are people who've never mourned in the way that we're going to talk about mourning today. That's a serious warning from our Lord. And it's vital that we must understand that inheriting the kingdom of God and being a child of the kings realizes first and foremost the poverty of spirit that we are in, that we are poor in spirit. That poverty of spirit is actually a posture of divine grace towards God and God's grace towards us. It's coming to God saying, God, I'm needy. I have nothing to offer you. And it's at that point that kingdom life starts when we recognize that is the beginning of kingdom life and we see what goes on from there in a few moments. Being poor in spirit, if you want to just kind of get this understanding in in your mind, is the intellectual understanding of our standing before God. And now the second beatitude that we're going to look at here today is our emotional response. So we're going from our head, now we're going to our heart. What is our heart response towards God? What is our heart's response And Jesus talks that it ought to be filled with mourning. He says in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In other words, he's saying, for they will be helped 
They will be the ones that will be ministered to. These are the ones that will be empowered. These are the ones that will have my, my peace. These will be the ones who experience my grace. So essentially, in short, what Jesus is saying is happy are the unhappy. Bit of an upside down thing there, right? Little counterintuitive, a bit of a paradox there. Happy are the sad, Jesus is saying. And sometimes I think we as Christians, we've mastered this really, really well. And we ought not to at all times. I mean, we can look in our demeanor like we are swimming or we were baptized in lemon juice, you know, or, or lime juice, you know. And, and what happens, I experimented a little bit with this this morning, you know, and, and you know, what, what happens when you get a little lime juice? You, yeah, that's, and I think it was a little old in our fridge, so it tastes a little extra funny. And, you know, and. And this is the demeanor, sadly, of many God's, of God's children. We're grumpy. We're sad. We, we're, we're unhappy. We're discontent. It's like we are constantly, you know, have that squeeze bottle of, of, lemon, of lime juice or lemon juice in our lives. And, and that's clearly not what kingdom living is about. That's not what being poor in spirit or being, um, being those who mourn what it's actually talking about. Jesus, though, is saying, though, blessed are they that mourn. What's he talking about? Does this mean that perpetual state of unhappiness and walking around glum and sad? Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're, we're reminded there that there's a time for everything. There's a time to weep. There's also a time to laugh. It says there's a time to mourn, and we're going to see when that time to mourn is, but also a time to dance. And I trust that our mourning will lead, our spiritual mourning that we're going to talk about today, will lead to spiritual dancing. Now, some of you who might think that's not good, uh, you know, it, it, you'll be dancing in your spirit, I'm sure, somehow. Uh, you'll have an extra little spring in your step, step. But we must understand, folks, first and foremost, laughter is good. I don't want to talk about thinking that, that mourn, being mournful in spirit means we're walking around sad and glum like we're carrying the weight of the world because we're not. We should be people who laugh and enjoy laughter the best in all of the world that we should be able to laugh. I think of in April when I went to Romania for a church conference and a number of pastors from North America, we were traveling back after the conference. We had about a three-hour drive from, from Brela to Bucharest to, to get uh, on the airplane to head home. And, and some Romanian pastors came with us and we were in this nice big full-size van and we were driving along. And there was one Romanian pastor who had not bad English, um, but that actually added to the whole humor of it, who was a joke teller. He said, my dad would always tell jokes and I learned those jokes because I heard them so many times. And so he started telling us jokes. And jokes with a Romanian bent with an accent, some of them weren't even funny. Ways through, I started to record these jokes on my phone because it was just so comical hearing these jokes. And yeah, some of them were pretty funny, and some of them we just did not get. Like, it just bombed in the North American environment, I guess, that, that we didn't get. But it was our laughter, and we were tired and kind of worn out, and we just needed that kind of a laugh. By the time we got back, we got to Brela, it was like we were all so tired, we were worn out. Why? We had been laughing so hard, and a good Deep, hard, belly laugh at times is so good. God's word even tells us that it is. And so I'm not talking about never being happy and being able to laugh. And we should, of all people, 
be people of laughter. Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, there are some preachers, there are some Christians that walk around like they have a, 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 a tie wrapped around their soul. And it's cutting off the circulation, you know, and, and it just seems just so, so prim, so proper, and just no opportunity to laugh. Life is being so serious. I have to laugh at my grandmother a little bit. Um, this was a few years before she passed away, and every time that we would go to Regina to see her, whether we were living here in Kelowna or in, in Alberta, we would go to see, see her and my grandfather, and then when he passed away, we just went to go see her in the, in the home that she was in, and we'd always have communion with her, and one of the sweetest, some of the sweetest times we're spending time in, in celebrating the Lord's Supper with my grandparents, and then in the very end with my grandmother, and I remember the last few times we went out in the fall, and so it was during grape season, and so ended up taking some, some grapes that we had picked and, and just before I went to go see her crushed those, those grapes and we had authentic grape juice. Just a sweet time of communion and celebrating the Lord's Supper. But after one of those events my grandmother was thanking me and, and then she said, oh Meldon we just can't believe it. She's talking like my grandfather was still alive but he wasn't. Uh, we just can't believe it how you turned out. We can't believe that you are a pastor. And I said, oh, really, Grandpa and Grandma? Why would you say that? You know, to my grandmother. And, and she said, well, when you were younger, you were so full of fun, she said. And I just laughed, and I thought that was so comical that she would see that. And she said, and look how God can change a person. And I'm like, oh, Grandma, don't get me wrong. I still like to have my fun. Uh, Snapchat. I mean, Snapchat for old guys, it's a lot of fun. I mean, all those face things and able to send stuff to my brother and to my kids and, and irritate them at times. I mean, there's nothing like being able to enjoy a good laugh, and it's wonderful to do it. I think back to a church where we served. We had one of the uh, men in the church. He was this big, burly trucker type. He had a big beard. He was a big man. He had a hard handshake. He had this serious demeanor, but oh boy, could he laugh. He would have one of those belly laughs, and when you would hear him laughing in the church, it was heard throughout the corner. I mean, he was great to, to have when you're preaching and tell a joke because he would laugh. And, and, and a lot of times, even if the joke wasn't funny, people would be laughing at him. And then what was even better was his wife's laugh. His wife had, had this hilarious laugh as well, which I'm going to uh, perform for you today because it was one that we as a family, my family would get to hear because I would imitate that laugh and it would make us laugh because of her laugh. And so it would be something like this. I probably shouldn't look at you folks while I do this, but it would just be this... So, so, so just picture him laughing, this big, huge, burly, loud uh, belly laugh, and hers was... <laughs> and, and it would go on like that, and you, so you hear him on one side and her on the other, and you couldn't help but be happy when you would hear that. You wouldn't even know what they were laughing about, and it would just make you happy. And so, so laughter is good. In fact, God's word tells us that laughter is like a medicine for the soul. That's found in Psalm 17, if you need a, a, a place to look that up. It's a good medicine. But let's face it, folks, that too much medicine, too much laughter is not always a good thing either. There needs to be that balance. There needs to be a time to be serious. There needs to be a time for mourning. And just as there is that time to laugh, there's a time to mourn. And what are we to mourn over? We are to mourn over our sin and the condition of our world around us and the sin that's in our world. Jesus is saying that mourning is necessary and it is appropriate response to the depths 
and the devastation of our sin. That when we understand and get a picture, a glimpse, a grasp, even ever so slightly, of our sin and the great cost and the effect that it has not only on us but around those around us, as well as those in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and we see the devastation of sin in our world, that it ought to send us into mourning. And so I encourage you to write this down. This is kind of an important statement that really summarizes this verse. In fact, it's probably just as long as this verse. But here's the summary statement. Deep mourning produces great comfort resulting in ultimate joy. And so let's just break this down quickly. Deep mourning. What kind of mourning is Jesus talking about? Is he mourning about a dent or a scratch in your new car? Or mourning the grieving that happens when your team loses a close game or loses the championship game? Mourning over a broken relationship or the mourning over a loved one that has died when something tragic or painful or it is just the gentle passing of someone? Is this the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about? Those are all forms of mourning. These are the reasons why we can get sad and upset. Some of them more legitimate, obviously, than others. But Jesus... Here, again, as I remind you, this is a different mourning. This is a deep mourning over our sin. A mourning over understanding the cost of our sin and what our sin has done to Jesus Christ. And once again, not just our own sin, but the sin of the world. And, and you can't help but watch the news. And, and one of the dangerous things that when we watch the news these days... We can watch things take place. We can see what happened with the Trinity Western uh, ruling from the Supreme Court of Canada. And we're seeing that things are crowding in around Christians and about being able to stand up for, for what we stand for on, on biblical values. We see so much heartache in our world. We see sin. We become cynical. We can become angry. We can do all kinds of things. But do we mourn over the sin of the world? Sean sent me this thing just later on, uh, just late in the week, and, and when I clicked on it, I, I just kind of thought, and I think his response was, this will make your head just hurt in trying to understand this. And, and this was a, a new look on Father's Day, and this was a CNN article that, that he came across this past week. And see what you see before you is a little child, but in front of you, the, the person in purple is the mother who gave birth to this child, to, the, her, to her son, but he's transitioning over to be a man. And so he gave birth, he breastfed the baby, but then after he breastfed, had a surgery to, to turn him further into a man. And sitting on the couch behind him is a man that is trans, transgendered over to a woman. And so you have this, I mean, it just makes your head spin as far as how this can actually happen. And we can become cynical, we might even just, some may even laugh and just say, I can't believe this. And yet these kind of things should cause us to mourn about the condition of our world, where our world is going, where it is right now, and, and what is yet to come. And one of the things that, that I heard a statement years ago, and, and it was profound, and, and I'm not even sure who said it, but it was something along these lines. What one generation will laugh, out, laugh at, the next generation will actually live out. And you see that time and time again as, as we see this ethical slide. The things that we laugh over and think are funny and, and just a joke end up becoming a reality in, in oftentimes what ends up taking place in our world. And so we are to mourn over our sin and over the sin of the world and it is to cause us great grief. 
And this word for mourning that Jesus uses here in this beatitude is the strongest and the deepest of nine Greek words that there are for the word mourning. This is the strongest. This is the kind of mourning and, and that deep turmoil, heavy grief of what I described to you earlier in the message about that man who lost his wife, whose wife had passed away. And this is the same kind of grief, mourning, turmoil that we are to have over our sins and over the sins of the world. It is from a passionate, a passionate response from the depths of our heart, a lament over our sin. And so Jesus is saying, those who mourn in this way, he is saying, happy are the sad. Happy is the person who has a deep conviction of their sin. Happy is the person, he goes on because what this entails, happy is the person that then ultimately confesses and repents of their sin. And Romans 3.23 reminds us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12 reminds us that therefore as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of sin, we're all, we've all sinned. We all have the mark of sin upon us. We're all guilty. We're all condemned. And Romans 6.23 reminds us that for the wages of sin, the cost of our sin means death. And sin is serious. Sin brings death. It brings devastation to the world and to the, to, to the human soul. It brings separation from God for eternity. Sin results in that eternal separation from God in hell. Do we mourn over our sin? Do we mourn over the sins of our world? Do we mourn like how David mourned in Psalm 38? And you just might want to write down this passage and read it later. I'm going to read a few verses from it. And here is David who's under deep conviction of sin. And he's saying, there is no health in my bones. It's affecting his health. He says, there's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate. All day long I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Here is a man who is broken, who is mourning over his own sin. And yes, David David was a great man of God, a man after God's own heart. He was also a great man who sinned, but he was also a great man who mourned the loss and mourned his sin, and he was a great man of confession that caused him to be once again a great man of God, as we see a great man of God who sinned greatly, but was also forgiven greatly and forgiven much because he was a man of mourning over his sin. But sadly, we don't mourn over our sin these days. Here's so often what we do when it comes to our sin. And these are just a few ideas, a, a number of things that kind of jotted down. And, 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 and this refers to the sins of the heart, those quiet sins, those silent sins in our lives that maybe no one sees. Our sins of commission, things that we know we ought not to do and yet we do it anyways. Or sins of omission, knowing what God's word has to say and then ignoring it and not paying attention to God's word, sins of commission, sins of omission. And here are some of the things we do. Here's just a quick list, and then I left a blank because there's probably some others. First of all, perhaps we excuse our, excuse our sin. I'm weak. Can't help it. It's just the way I am. So I was just making allowance for my sinful ways. Or we hide it. 
We do it in secret or we think, as long as I don't get caught, it's not a big deal. No one will ever know. But Proverbs 28, we're told, he who conceals his sin, who, he who hides his sin, will not prosper. Or else we downplay it. It's not that big of a deal. It's just a little white lie. It's a little fudging of the numbers. It's just a little lust, a little gossip. It's not one of those big sins after all. Or we justify our sin. And similar to making excuses for it, but it, it, it's, I deserve to be angry after what they did to me. I deserve to, they do not deserve my forgiveness. After what they said or what they did. They had it coming to them anyways, and so we justi justify our sin. Or we love it. We love our sin. Sin can be fun, right? Intriguing, exciting. The party life, sexual sin, it's great for a season. But just remember, sin will always take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. So there's a danger because we can love our sin. We laugh at it. It's not a big deal. We make a joke about it. Or we laugh at sin on TV and movies and talk shows. Comedians make, make so much of their audience and their crowd by laughing at sin. Or we compare it. At least I'm not like that person. I'm not so bad. I'm no saint. I know that. But, you know, at least I'm not like that person over there. So we compare our sin with others. Or maybe we beat it. It's like, I got to beat this thing. I'm going to... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to overcome it on my own power, my own strength, my own discipline. I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty disciplined person, and, you know, I'm going to wear some elastic bands, and whenever I have a bad thought, I'm going to snap that elastic, and bad boy, you know, or, or some way that we're going to self-discipline ourselves and beat this sin. I'm going to get it after all. Or else we wallow in our sin. We admit it, but we just stay there, and we live in the guilt and the condemnation and shame of our sin. And Jesus said, what are we to do with our sin? We are to mourn over our sin. First and foremost, we mourn over it. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your, your hearts, you double-minded. And look at what he says. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Here he's giving the first three beatitudes James is doing so here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it goes on to say, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The way that we deal with our sin in a worldly way, in worldly grief, all those excuses, it leads to death. But when we repent, when there is a godly repentance for our sins, it leads to life. And so Jesus is saying, mourn over your sin. Be broken by your sin. Understand that our sins have separated us from God. And that because of our sin, we deserve death. And would we see that our sin, even the smallest of sin, is an affront, an offense to God? But here's the good news, that deep mourning will produce great comfort. Great mourning 
or deep mourning will produce great comfort because, or from God, because of the cross. He's saying, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You know the best way to understand that? It says they shall be comforted. When it says they shall be comforted, that means it's now. It's immediate. The comfort doesn't come tomorrow or the next day. The comfort comes immediately. God provides his comfort right now to all those who mourn over their sin, to all those who cry out to him for the provision of his forgiveness found in his son, Jesus Christ. When we call sin what it is, no more excuses. God, I'm coming clean. And we come to him with a repentive and a mournful heart and we see our sin for what it is and we cry out from our depths and claiming the love of Christ that was demonstrated for us on the cross and the forgiveness that's available there. And we consider what he did for us, not just simply the pain and the torture, the physical suffering that he went through on our behalf. That was terrible. When I, and probably many of you have watched The Passion of the Christ, and as you watch that, I think I can only handle it about once a year, and I can't even oftentimes make it through it all. See little segments of it, see little video clips of it, and just reminded of the depths of the suffering that Jesus went through, the physical pain because of my sin, because of what I did. And yet in this reality, what was even worse than the physical pain and suffering that Jesus went through, it was the wrath of God. It was the fact that his father turned his face from him. He could not look upon his son because his son was covered with sin. Oh, that we would feel the weight and the devastation of our sin. But we would also see the Savior who loved us so much. My sin placed on Jesus, imputed to him, and his righteousness bestowed upon us. That's a great exchange. That's what we get when we trust him, when we come to him with a mournful heart, a repentive heart, and a receiving of his love and grace and forgiveness. His righteousness is bestowed upon us. 1 John 1, 9 says we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. There is no sin that God's grace is not deeper than. There's no sin that God's grace is not greater than. 1 John 1, 7, love this. It goes on to talk about the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin, but it enables us then to walk with him, to walk in the light as he is in the light. That's walking in unity with our God in relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. And it also allows us to have unity and walk with one another. Romans 8 goes on to remind us that in Christ, because of Christ, there is no condemnation. The old is gone. He's taken our sin, our guilt, our shame. And that all happened the moment that we are justified. And when we mess up and as we will mess up and we continue in areas of sin, when we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just, he forgives those sins and he has cleansed us once again. The slate is clean. His righteousness for our unrighteousness. What an exchange. 
In Galatians 5 verse 1 reminds us that the power of sin has been broken. We've been set free from the power of sin. Though the presence of sin is still in our world and still in our lives and still in our minds, the power of sin has been broken. God's great forgiveness, his mercy produces an immediate comfort that he comes and, and grants to his children. He gives that peace and he gives himself to us. This is a comfort that comes from only God himself. See, the word comfort there is the word in Greek that means counselor. The same reference that we have also in the New Testament, like in John 14, 26, referred to as the Holy Spirit. That when there is a mourning over our sin, it produces great comfort from the Holy Spirit. God himself, the third member of the Trinity, but it only comes to those who see their sin for what it truly is and call out with a mournful and a broken heart. And this, my friends, ends up resulting in the greatest joy, in ultimate joy. This is what a truly blessed and approved by God life looks like. This is the way to kingdom living. This is where eternity begins. This is where our life in Christ begins, understanding beatitude number one, our spiritual poverty, but then coming along, beatitude number two, coming in a heart of mourning over our sins. And in the same way that we enter the kingdom, this is the way that we continue to live in the kingdom. Poverty of spirit. Not starting to think greater ideas and thoughts of ourselves and how God is lucky to have me on his team. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to him I continue to cling. And it's a continual mourning over my own sin. Because the truth is, as you walk closer to Christ, as you walk closer, you end up seeing more areas of sin. There's a time in our day that I just don't like um, at this time of year. The way that the sun shines late in the evening, just before the sun goes down. It shines light in and through our windows and oftentimes I like to go and I actually close the blind just so especially now that the house doesn't heat up extra from the sun shining in but it's also because it shows the dust in our house and and you know what we're generally fairly clean people I think but when that sun shines in it shows the fingerprints it shows the pollen that is blown in through the screens that, that they didn't quite filter and the dust from, you know, a little bit of the wind that we get. And it shows the cat hair and the human hair. And, you know, it, it, I don't like it very much. But as we draw ourselves closer to God and his power and his light shines in a greater way in our lives, we end up seeing our sin in a greater way. And so we continue in an attitude of poverty of spirit and continuing to mourn over our sin and we desire to deal with that. We confess it to him. We repent. We desire to walk his way. We get the help that's needed. We ask for the forgiveness of those around us who we've hurt and affected and whose lives we are affecting. Years ago, in a church where we were at, we had an older couple that came to our church and, and very quickly we deeply loved and just greatly respected this couple. They had been missionaries and church planters, missionaries in a foreign land, church planters in Canada. Now in their retirement years, living a very simple life, 
but they became very dear to us very quickly. Especially the wife, she was an incredible woman of prayer and a woman of faith. That when there was a crisis, when there was something going on, there was a phone call. They didn't have email back then. Didn't have text messages. But there was a phone call. We'd pick up the phone and get her to pray. And her and her husband would go to prayer for whatever that situation was. One day, their daughter came to me, and, and she would have been in her probably mid-50s at that time. She came to me, and she said, you need to know my father's in the early stages of dementia. She said, there's something else you need to know. She said, there's a dark secret in our home. She said, my parents were sent home from the mission field because of my father's ongoing sexual sin. She went on to describe since returning home from the mission field, and these kids were now teenagers, his years of anger and the way that he would take out this anger on his family and how his family endured the devastating effects of his guilt and his shame over his sin. She said that it seemed like her father never truly repented before God, and he never repented before his wife or before his children for what he had done. She and her siblings came to me, or she came as a representative of her siblings, hoping that perhaps the elders in the church would confront her dad. Concerned that he was not truly right with the Lord and that perhaps in being right with the Lord would correct aspects of his family life that was uh, in the family life that was continuing on in a downward cycle. After some time in prayer and seeking the Lord and myself and a few elders went out to see this man. And as we confronted him about his past and asked him about this, it was clear there was no sadness. There was no remorse, no regrets, just anger, turning to his wife and saying the most hurtful things to her. He gave excuses and he justified his sin. His heart had grown hard. We hoped, we prayed that his heart would be softened and he would repent and he would turn to God. He would mourn over his sins and the devastating effect that his sins would have on his family. But it was clear he was just sorry he got caught. He then asked us to leave. He got quite angry. Thankfully, or whatever it might be, because of his dementia, he didn't remember it the next day, and he didn't take it out on his wife or his daughter. But months later, I went to go see him at a care facility that they had to put him into. And I asked the staff before I went to see him, I said, how is he? How is he for a patient? They said, he's wonderful. The most loving, charming, godly man that you would ever meet. And I said, really? So I went in to see him, and the moment he saw me, something triggered, and the anger came, and it came, and he took his cane, and he chased me out while I was, I was younger, faster than I am now, but still no, even then, no, no competition for him. I was able to get up and get out of there, and the last memory I have of this guy was beating his cane against plexiglass, telling me to get out and not using kind words to do so. And I thought, here is a man who had opportunity to mourn over his sin and over the devastation, not only what he did to his family, but before God. And he never did so. He lived the lie. Everyone thought so good of him and that he was this amazing man, and yet he was living a lie. It was a sad situation, and yet, folks, we have this promise that deep mourning 
over whatever sin it is that God is revealing in our life. Deep mourning, which leads to great confession, produces great comfort, resulting in ultimate joy of being free. Being free. What that can do in a life, in a marriage, in a family, it can be so different than it is now. God's word says, blessed are they that mourn, for they will be comforted. I wonder where are you at today? Have you come to that place of spiritual poverty in your life? Recognizing that you bring nothing to God, nothing in my hand I bring. Have you ever mourned over your sin? Have you been truly broken over the sin that you have committed in your life? Blessed people have done this. Truly blessed people, people who are truly happy in the Lord have done this. Have you done this? If not, enter the kingdom today. If you've never done so, admit your spiritual poverty, your brokenness over your sin, and receive what Christ has done for you on the cross. Do that today. Maybe you're in the kingdom and you've wandered away from these truths. You've wandered away from this understanding and this heart attitude towards mourning towards our sins. Would you mourn over your sin today and come to a father who will forgive? Perhaps you're a prodigal running from God in a far off land. Oh, you may be here. You may be in church, but spiritually and where your soul is, you're far off today. And in reality, you're eating the food of pigs, just like that prodigal in Luke 15. But one day he said, enough, no more pig food, no more living like this. I need to go to my father and I need to, to mourn. I need to come to him and find mercy and forgiveness. And what did he find as he came back home, as he came to his father? He found a tender father willing to receive him, to put a coat, to put a robe on him, a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and say, son, welcome home. And that is the heart of our father today who welcomes sinful sinner home, the broken over our sin he says, come home, I forgive you as we repent and make it right before him. When we come in poverty in our mourning, God works his grace that leads to ultimate joy. Enter the kingdom today. Return to kingdom living today. Enough is enough. Enough.